You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a cycle of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Rethinking Economics, Lectures and Seminars on World Economics. This is Lecture 13, entitled Spiritual Cultural Needs, given in Dornach on August 5, 1922. To understand how the sort of thing we discussed last time can be maintained, we must now turn our attention to certain features in the economic process that also take a part in the determination of economic values and that at the same time show how very difficult it is to value in the economic sense what comes into the process through the human mind and spirit. I will give you an example, not exactly fictitious, but put in such a way that its value as an example does not depend on the specific facts on which it is based. Suppose that at a given time there lived a great poet, recognized as such during his lifetime, and increasingly so after his death. Now a man who is interested in this poet, being perhaps particularly fond of his poetry, may hit upon the following idea. In the near future, he says to himself, people will make more and more of this poet. I know for certain. At any rate, I can afford to take the risk. That in the near future, say within twenty years, he will grow even more popular than now. Furthermore, following the thinking habits of our time, within twenty years an archive is sure to be set up to collect his manuscripts. From various information he has picked up and turned over in his astute head, this man says to himself, These things are quite sure to happen. Very well. I will begin at once to purchase autographed manuscripts of this poet, for they are still very inexpensive. And then one day, when he is sitting in the company of others, one of them says, Personally, I am not very keen on speculation. All I desire is to have a reasonable interest on my savings. Another says, That is not good enough for me. I am buying shares in a certain mining concern. He is more of a speculator. He is buying paper industrial shares. But the third, our man, says, I am buying up the best paper on the market. It is very cheap indeed, but I shall not tell you fellows what it is, for it is part of the venture that he does not give his game away. The paper I am buying will rise in value more than any other in the near future. So he buys nothing but photographs of the said poet, and after twenty years he sells them to the archives or to others who will sell them to the archives in their turn. He sells them for many times the amount he gave, so that he turns out to be the biggest speculator of the three. It is a perfectly real case, though I will not give any for the details now. It did, in fact, occur. As you can perceive, it brought about a very significant reshuffling of economic values. Now, what were the factors that contributed to this reshuffling of values?
in the first place, simply the prudent exploitation of the fact that the poet's reputation was growing, a growth that in the end found expression in the establishment of archives. To the reshuffling of values, the bringing of it all into the hands of a single man, you must add the fact that he kept his own counsel about it, did not draw the attention of others to it, nor did they think of the idea themselves. Therefore he was able to make an enormous profit. This case is mentioned to illustrate how complicated the question can become, how many factors converge in the nature of value, and how difficult it is to grasp them all. Is it quite impossible to grasp all the factors in one way or another? You may say that for a considerable part of life it will be perfectly possible for men and women of sound intelligence in their right associations to estimate the factors even to the extent of giving them numerical expression. But there will still be many things, things of decisive importance for a true estimate of values, which it will not be possible to grasp with ordinary common sense, unless we look for some fresh aids to understanding. We saw how nature, to acquire an economic value, must be transformed by human labor, must be combined with human labor. There is the product of nature, which in an economic organization based on division of labor has, properly speaking, no value to begin with. Now, let us try to find our way into this picture. Values arise by the joining together of the material of nature, if we may call it so, with human labor. Thus, if only in a kind of algebraic formula we may begin to approach the real function of value formation. For instance, we can see at once that it cannot be a question of simply superimposing labor upon the nature element. For the labor changes the nature element. It cannot be merely be a merely additive function. It will be more complicated than this. But we can hold to what we have already said. We see the economic value arise where the product of nature is first taken over by human labor. Obviously the first stage in the process, in the taking over of the nature product by human labor, is direct work on the land. Therefore, when all is said, we must always look upon the cultivation of the land in the widest sense of the term, as the starting point of economic life. This is the condition preceding the whole of economic life. But how is it when we go over to the other side of the economic process? I need not enlarge on it any more at this stage. It is quite evident from the preceding lectures that even such a thing as the redistribution of values plays a considerable part in the movement of economic values. How shall we find anything comparable in all these different factors? If we regard nature times labor as the value that comes up from the one side, or as I said, whatever the right function is, then we must look for something comparable on the other side. We cannot simply compare nature with the spirit or mind 
for we shall find no point of comparison, least of all by way of purely economic considerations, if only for the reason that a highly subjective element enters in here. Think of a simple village economy, a self-contained one, if you will. There have actually been such economies, self-contained to some extent at least. It will consist, to begin with, of the things produced. We can imagine even the market and the town from this picture. This economy will consist of the farmers, the workers on the land, the workers in the different trades, those who clothe the people, for instance, and a few others, but no special proletarians. Such a thing will not yet exist, nor need we, in our present line of thought, turn our attention in that direction. Whatever is relevant to the proletariat will appear in due course. But our village economy will also include the schoolmaster and the parson, or two schoolmasters and two parsons. They will have to live on what the others give them, if it is a purely village economy. Whatever develops there of the free spiritual cultural life will in the main have to develop among the teachers and the parsons, or possibly a parish clerk will be added. Now we must ask ourselves how a proper valuation comes about in this simple economic circuit. There will be very little else of a, quote, free spiritual cultural life, close quote. We can scarcely imagine the schoolmasters or the parsons blossoming into novelists, because if the village economy is a closed one, they would not be able to sell very much. Novelists would be able to earn in this community only if they were able to instill into the farmers, tailors, and shoemakers a passion for their novels. In that case, no doubt, they might be able to call into being a small industry, but it would cost a great deal to do that. We cannot, in the ordinary way, imagine such a thing existing in our little village community. In fact, the free spiritual cultural life must await certain conditions. But from the simple fact that there are the parsons and the teachers and a parish clerk, we can conceive how the achievements of these spiritual cultural workers, for they are such in the economic sense, will come to be valued economically. What is the requisite condition for these spiritual cultural workers to be able to live in the village at all? It is that the people send their children to school and that they have religious needs. Spiritual cultural needs, therefore, are the fundamental premise. Failing such needs, even these few spiritual cultural workers could not be there. And we shall have to ask ourselves, how will these spiritual cultural workers economically imbue their products with value, their sermons, for example, even these must be conceived in an economic sense, and their school lessons. How will these be valued at the whole of economic circulation? This is a fundamental question. We shall gain an answer to this question only if we begin by imagining quite vividly what the others must be doing. They must be doing physical work. Through bodily labor they call forth economic values. If there were no need for sermons and school lessons, the parsons and teachers would have to do physical work. 
Everyone would be working with their hands and the spiritual, cultural life would drop out of the picture. We would no longer be concerned with the economic valuation of spiritual, cultural products. Thus we arrive at the required valuation precisely by observing that parsons and teachers are spared physical labor. If they are to do their spiritual cultural work, which is desired, they must be relieved from the physical work. Here you can introduce into the line of thought something amenable to at least a more general treatment. Suppose, for example, that there is need for only half as many sermons and school lessons. What will then have to happen? You cannot appoint half a parson and half a teacher. Therefore the parson and the teacher will have to spend part of their time in physical labor. Therefore the valuation on their side will depend on the amount of physical labor of which they are relieved. This is the measure for the valuation of their work. One person contributes physical labor. Another saves it and this person's spiritual cultural achievement has a value corresponding to the amount of physical labor that he or she saves by virtue of it. Take these two economic aspects and think the process through economically and you will see that even a sermon must have an economic value. And moreover, think of how it acquires this economic value. It acquires it inasmuch as labor is saved or spared, whereas on the other side labor has to be applied. The same principle runs through the entire spiritual cultural life. What does it signify, in the economic sense, if a man paints a picture, painting it, shall we say, for ten whole years? It signifies that the picture acquires a value for him, inasmuch as it will enable him once more to spend ten years painting another picture. He can do so only if he can save himself physical labor for a period of ten years. Therefore the picture will have to become worth as much as would be made from other products by physical labor during ten years. Even if you take such a complex case as I explained at the beginning of this lecture, the same result will emerge. In all cases of spiritual cultural production, if you try to find the concept of value, you will arrive at this other concept, the concept of labor that is saved or spared. It was the cardinal error of the Marxists that they looked at all economics exclusively from the physical side. They said that capital is to be looked upon as crystallized labor, as a product with which labor has been combined. Now if an artist paints a picture, the spirit painted into it during ten years is certainly combined with it. But this could at most be computed by those who believe that spirit is the inner work of the human organism transmuted, which is sheer nonsense. The spiritual cultural cannot be compared to the natural in that facile way. If I complete a spiritual cultural product, the point is not that labor is in some way stored up in the product. The work stored up in it is economically irrelevant. As physical work it may be very little. Moreover, what little there was in any case 
falls under the other concept of physical work. What gives value to the product is in truth the labor that it will save me. On the one side of the economic process, the actual doing of work, the bringing of labor to the product, is the value-creating factor. The product absorbs labor, attracts it. On the other side, the product raises out labor, begets labor. The value is the original thing that calls the labor into being. We now have, therefore, a means of comparison, namely, labor on the one side and labor on the other side, and we are, therefore, in a position to relate them. For we may say, if the value in the one case equals, quote, nature times labor, close quote, in the other we must call it, quote, spirit minus labor, close quote. The direction is exactly opposite. Physical labor has meaning only inasmuch as the one who wants to contribute it to the economic process actually does it himself or herself. While what is related to the product on the spiritual-cultural side is the labor that one person does for another. It must therefore be entered as a negative in the economic process. It is a remarkable thing. Study the history of economics and you will always find that what is said is right, but only in a limited sphere. There are economists who believe that it is labor that gives things value, the school of Adam Smith and the school of Marx, for example. But other schools give another definition, which again is correct in a certain sphere. According to them, a thing becomes capital, that is a source of value, inasmuch as it saves labor. Both points of view are true. The one is true of all that is in any way related to nature, to the soil, the land, while the other is related to spirit or mind. Between these two there is a third. In effect, neither of the two extremes is ever there in its pure form. They are only there in an approximately absolute sense. After all, even in picking blackberries, which acquires economic value only inasmuch as the workers actually go there and do it, even here there is some spirit or mind at work. If of two blackberry pickers one lacks insight and has extra work by picking where the berries are scarce, while the other finds a place where there are plenty and obtains a better yield for the labor, the blackberries of the former worker are of less value, relatively speaking. The first blackberry picker will get less money for the same amount of berries. In effect, then, neither extreme is ever realized absolutely. Even the gathering of blackberries entails spirit or mind at work, although we may not call it so. The work of using one's wits creates values, just as it did with the collector of autographs. At least it creates values through redistribution. Once more, then, we have labor in the one direction and in the other, and this alone enables us to compare the economic values. But this comparing is done by the economic process of its own accord. We can at most raise it in a certain way into the sphere of conscious reason. 
indeed all that I have given in these lectures amounts to this, we lift certain instinctive processes into consciousness. As I said just now, we have neither of the two extremes in any absolute sense. For on the, for on the other side, parenthesis, V equals S minus L, close parenthesis, no matter how much painters use their intelligence, they must still do some physical labor if they wish to create anything of economic value. Even if they exercise clairvoyant power, a thing that one cannot grasp at all in terms of economics, even then they must still do some physical labor. Relying on their genius, it may be that they can afford to be lazy. Still, now and then they must take up the brush. Some physical work has to be done even in this case, just as some little effort of thought must go even into the picking of blackberries. Things that take place in real life cannot be grasped merely quantitatively. They have to be grasped while they are actually happening. Therefore, we can grasp them with our concepts only if we realize that the concepts themselves need to be kept in constant movement. It is between these two extremes that we can perceive more clearly how in real economic life physical and spiritual cultural work play into one another, moving back and forth. Just as in some machine there is a regulated backward and forward movement, so in industry physical work from the one side and spiritual cultural work from the other are passing back and forth. It is in this mutual interplay from two directions that we have as a third what plays into the economic process between the other two. We have the case where people have to do physical labor, yet by their spiritual or mental power, using their wits, they are relieved from some of it. This is always actually the case, except that it sometimes approximates more to the formula I wrote above, V equals N times L, and sometimes more to the formula I wrote below, V equals S minus L. The latter, in effect, would be fulfilled in its entirety only if there could be among the consumers someone who did nothing but save labor by means of his or her spiritual cultural faculties, and it could only be someone who was born already fully mature. In this way, we can look into the economic process from this aspect of valuation, valuing what comes from nature on the one hand and from spirit on the other. At this point we can say that where positive and negative work into one another, somehow an intermediate condition will emerge. Either the positive or the negative can predominate. Let us assume for a moment that the positive dominates. In the village economy it certainly will do so, for in such a community there will be no widespread interest in spiritual cultural work beyond what is absolutely necessary. But the more life grows complicated, or as we are apt to say sentimentally, the more civilization advances, in quotes, the more highly, as may be seen even empirically, spiritual cultural work is valued. That is to say, the more labor is saved, the more a negative element comes in as against the positive. 
I beg you to consider well that by characterizing it in this way we are taking hold of a real process. It is not that physical labor is done on the one side and then negated on the other. That would be no real progress in the economic sense. It would at most be a process of nature. All that is done out of physical labor helps to create values. None of the value is destroyed. What counteracts the saving of labor from the other side counteracts it only in a numerical sense. In a purely numerical sense, it affects the value of physical labor. For this very reason, we are enabled to express in a real way what actually happens. Physical workers are active. Spiritual cultural workers are active. But the achievement in the one case is work that is positively done, while in the other it is a work that in reality signifies a saving of work. Only by this means is an effective valuation brought about. The aspects are divested of their particularity and it becomes possible to grasp the process in terms of numbers, inasmuch as it is the same factor that emerges on either side and only the valuation is altered. With the advance of civilization, then, spiritual cultural work increases in importance, and this implies that bodily work has a less powerful effect on the valuing process. Physical strength is, of course, applied, and it must be so more and more as we go forward. Even the cultivation of the soil must be made more fruitful as civilization advances. More work must be done in a positive sense. The point is that the physical labor is divested to some extent of its value-creating power. Yet this again can be so only if those who perform the physical labor evince a growing need for what has to be achieved from the spiritual-cultural side. Here, once again, a human factor comes into the economic process. You cannot get around it. Indeed, with the advance of spiritual-cultural life, this particular human factor makes itself felt as an objective necessity. It is quite true that to begin with, when there are only the parson and the teacher, there is not much spiritual-cultural life in our village. But suppose there are two villages. In one village the parson and the teacher are average people. Things will go on as they are. In the other village, the parson or the teacher or both of them are above average people. They will be able to stimulate all manner of spiritual cultural interests in the next generation. And in all probability, by the time the next generation arises, some other spiritual cultural worker is brought into the village. Now there are three of them. In this regard, the spiritual cultural has a very fertile power which in its turn works back into economic life. What, in the last resort, does the process signify? It signifies that precisely labor, or rather the value-creating power of labor, which is the purely material phase of economic life, has an infinitely great value, is more and more reduced in course of time by what comes to meet it from the other side. I cannot exactly say that it is devalued, it is reduced numerically. 
in the working together between all that is represented by working the land, the tilling of the soil and so forth, and what is done from the spiritual cultural side, we have a kind of mutual compensation, and a certain compensation is the only right thing. Complex conditions arise again here. It may well turn out that in a given place there are too many spiritual cultural producers, that is, the counteracting, labor-saving power may be too strong. The resultant value is then negative, and the people cannot all live together except by consuming one another. Thus there is a limit somewhere to this compensation process. For every economic realm there is a certain balance, in the very nature of the case, between production from the land on the one side and spiritual cultural production on the other. Until this is understood in economics, how production from the soil, taken in the widest sense, of course, is related to spiritual cultural production, until this problem, which has hitherto hardly been considered, is very seriously dealt with, we shall never have an economics able to cope with our present needs. The first thing necessary is that we should begin working on definite data from which we may convince ourselves in an atmosphere unclouded by prejudice and agitation how some particular area gets into an unhealthy economic condition because it contains too many spiritual cultural workers. We may also perceive what power of the further development of culture and civilization an area has where that limit of which I have just spoken has not been reached. Progress is possible only within a given area, so long as this limit, determined by the necessary compensation of which I spoke, has not yet been reached. The task, then, will be to investigate those elements that still survive today of closed economies, such survivals are to be found everywhere, because we are passing only slowly into a world economy. We must investigate those elements where the economy of some area is still closed. We must study the aggregate welfare of those areas in which there are comparatively few poets, painters, shrewd business people, and so forth, and where there is still much agriculture or other activity connected immediately with the land. Then we shall have to study other areas where the opposite is the case. From the available data, we must work out empirically the general laws that will emerge for a true theory of balance between agriculture, or the working of the land in the widest sense, on the one hand, and spiritual cultural work on the other. It will be necessary that for any region we take what we might call the average spiritual cultural workers, not choosing examples that would falsify the whole balance, and on the other hand the average manual workers. Balance the one against the other, and you will perceive how the one works compensatingly upon the other. This is a point of cardinal importance for anyone who wishes to contribute to the further progress of economics today. The fact is that this problem, which should really underlie our thinking about price and value, is scarcely seen correctly anywhere as yet. As I said yesterday to a few of those present, in economics 
people are always allowing themselves to be misled into a partial instead of a comprehensive way of thinking. There is no doubt that Spengler makes some very shrewd economic observations at the close of the second volume of his Decline of the West. But he ruins these brilliant observations because he does not succeed in translating what he perceives historically into terms of present-day economic realities. He points out very justly how in the ancient economies the economic life that comes directly from the soil was predominant, whereas today the economic life that predominates thinks in money and consists, therefore properly speaking, in spiritual cultural work. But he fails to see that these two stages of economic life, which he records historically, continue side by side to this day. The one has not replaced the other in history. They stand side by side to this day, just as the most primitive abides within the most advanced. We find the amoeba crawling about free in external nature, and we find the same thing in our own blood, in the white blood cells. The different historical stages even in nature live side by side to this day, and so it is in economic life. The most varied conditions coexist. Sometimes, indeed, in the most highly cultivated economic life, if we may call it so, it is precisely the most highly cultivated elements that return to the most primitive. Values created by our living in a most elaborated culture hearken back, in a certain sense, to the state of primitive barter. Those who create their labor savings, as it were, will sometimes barter one of these for another to satisfy certain needs among themselves. Such things occur. We often find the most primitive functions applied once again to the most highly elaborated products. I wanted to add this remark to the present lecture so that tomorrow I may be able to give you as best I can some sort of conclusion to these lectures. The end of lecture 13.